Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. I've taught a few uh, public speaking classes here at this church before. Um, it's one of the few things in my life I've ever felt qualified um, to teach at a level outside of the Bible is public speaking. And there's always a, a question that they, they ask of me. You ever get nervous when you, when you go to talk on stage? And I, I usually say, no, not really. Um, but, but right now, and, and I haven't said this any of the other services because I haven't felt it, I feel a little anxious for today's message and especially this service. And um, there's a few reasons why, which I'll get into in a second, but I want to, uh, to talk to you about how you could possibly help me with that anxiousness about today's message. Uh, there's, there's a concept in, in communication where, where poor communication is one way and excellent communication is two way. Um, I don't want to talk to these chairs today. I want to talk with the people in them. Um, I'm not going to ask you questions or call you up. You can breathe. Um, but but I, I want to converse with you, connect with you, and, and discuss a difficult issue with you today. So the, the only way that I could ask for your help, or the only way that, well, there's probably two ways that you could help me here, is one, pray, start, start, start praying, and, and two, Lean in and help me. I, I know that, that today's message, you know, have you ever heard of the Hippocratic Oath that, that doctors take? It, it's first do no harm. You know, there's a similar concept with pastors. We, we don't want to hurt people. But I know that today's message has the potential to, to cause pain. And all week I've been wrestling with this passage because I believe that, that some of the pain that has to come is, is good pain. Um, this church is a hospital for sick people. It is not a hotel for saints. We, we aren't a luxury resort designed to make you feel good, but a hospital uh, designed and dedicated to improving the health of those pursuing Jesus. And sometimes a doctor does have to hurt a little bit to heal a lot. You, you have to scrub out the infection or set the bone or use a scalpel to bring healing. And today we're going to be in a passage that I believe is a little bit of an identifier of pain. And it, it might be uncomfortable for some of us, but we have to talk about it anyway. Um, the other thing that I think, the reason I was a little nervous walking up here is uh, Candace has, has given me a really hard time. Uh, occasionally I market myself as just the goofy fun guy who doesn't do anything serious around here. And she says, you're going to regret that one day. You're going to regret that one day. And as many of us know, Candace is annoyingly often right. And, um, and today is not a goofy or fun or silly message. It is an important one. And while I wish I could walk up to here with a silly story from scripture, of which there are plenty, and entertain you and exhort you and encourage you, uh, I feel like we need to go to this passage because God led, it, led me to it and to this topic a while ago and said, this is what you can do. Do what you can. Preach this word. So that's what we're going to do. And I primed individuals last week because we are in a three-part series. Uh, last week, Candace preached Between Two Gardens, part one. And uh, who was able to, to hear that message, be in the room for that message? 
Come on, guys, I said we're having a conversation. Okay, okay, there we go. Well, you didn't have to yell, but thank you. Love the, the I just meant hands. Uh, last week, she laid out for us the point of this series, that we are between two gardens. God created a perfect garden in which he put one tree, and he said, don't eat it. And we said, gonna eat it. And then we ate of the fruit of the tree of the garden, and we sinned, and we were separated from him, and evil, death, disease, and decay entered his creation. And therefore, we are now outside of that garden. But the Bible talks about another garden, a new heaven and new earth, an eternity, where there will be no pain, where there will be no sin, where there will be no shame. And we're going there. But what do we do now between those two gardens? And largely between those two gardens, we see evil. Evil. And today we're talking about some of the evil that's in this world. Uh, originally, this message was going to be specifically about the evils of sex trafficking in our society. And uh, that's, that's how I started writing this message on um, Sunday afternoon, Monday morning. And as I got into the passage and as I prayed, God kind of steered the direction into something that surprisingly I want to talk about even less than the evils of sex trafficking in our society. Um, and, and it's about the the pain of, of sexual abuse in our midst. Because in a lot of ways, maybe we could separate ourselves even one step from sex trafficking, but, but the statistics on sexual abuse in our communities are so staggering, it becomes almost impossible to separate ourselves from them, and that can be even more painful. The statistics are actually pretty shocking. As a youth pastor, I'm aware of the fact that approximately one in five female high school students will report being physically or sexually abused by a dating partner while in high school. One in five female students in high school will report being physically or sexually abused. In the US, one in three women and one in six men experience some form of sexual violence in their lifetime. One in five women and one in 71 men will be raped at some point in their lives. 93% of all sexual assault perpetrators knew their victim. They were supposed to protect, watch over, most of whom were family. 20% of all church attendees are survivors of some type of sexual abuse. 20%. So as writing this message, which is about a poor girl who is confronted with rape by someone in her family, and has to deal with the aftermath of what is done to her. As we study this message, I am well aware of the fact that 20% of the individuals in this room, at least, are survivors of sexual abuse. And as I worked on this message, tears falling on my keyboard, wrestling with God and begging him to allow me to talk about anything else. There's lots of bad things I could talk about that wouldn't invoke this kind of pain. He said no. So today I want to look at a story in the Bible to help create a culture where we are not afraid to talk about the evils in our society, where we are not afraid to address issues of shame or sexual dysfunction. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 13, and while you're turning there, I just I want to pray. And I want to seek God, and I, I want his help because, one, 
This is not an issue that has impacted my life personally, so I, I, I cannot ever imagine the, the pain or feelings that someone who has faced this issue is going through. And two, I am not adequately trained. I, I am not a, a licensed counselor who, who, can, who can guide individuals through this. So, so here's what I need. I need God's help and his grace today. And we all need his help and his grace today. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your, your word, the Bible, is full of examples and lessons for us to learn from. There is no issue that you avoided in your scriptures. You didn't write a perfect book of, of, of just perfect lives. These aren't fairy tales. This is real life that we can learn from. This is full of sinful people who are broken and in need of a savior. So God, as we study this, this story, as we learn this lesson, let your Holy Spirit speak, heal, and nourish individuals in this room both victims and perpetrators alike. Let us be nourished, healed, comforted by your Holy Spirit. Guide us as we study your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, it's not an easy one to talk about. But before we get into our passage today, I want to give you some context and, and introduce you to some of the characters that we will be studying, um, just so that I don't have to cover as much material later. The first thing, there are four characters that you need to know here in 2 Samuel 13. The first one's pretty famous, and you've probably heard of him, David, King David. You remember David and Goliath? Uh, my five-year-old and I, this week, we were reading through the story, and he said, no, 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 I know this one. And he told me the story of David and Goliath. It, it's pretty common in our culture. King David was anointed at a young age, and he killed Goliath, and he became a warrior, and he led Israel to victory after victory. He had numerous children with numerous wives. He had political marriages that, that strengthened alliances with other countries. He, he was a great king. He's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. He wrote the entire book of Psalms, basically, most of it. He, he, he was a worship leader. He was a king. He was a ruler. He was an amazing man. And he had a few children. Um, the first child that I want to talk about is Absalom. Absalom. Absalom is one of David's sons. It's not his first son, but, but it's a son in a, in a political marriage. Um, he would have married the, the daughter of a foreign king to strengthen that alliance. And then he had a, a daughter and a son, Absalom and Tamar. See, Absalom, he was, he was from a political marriage, and he was just a, a big, big thing in Israel. He's a big character in the Bible. And Tamar would have been the daughter of a political marriage. This meant a lot for Tamar. See, Tamar was a royal princess on both sides. She would have um, probably been grown and trained and raised to, again, be a part of a political marriage. She would have probably married royalty in another country, strengthening the... the the alliances for Israel. She had a purpose to serve her people, and she was set aside for that purpose, living in David's house, being taken care of, and having every need met. While Absalom, he wasn't the firstborn son, so he probably lived in his own home and had his own life and would live his own life. And, and then there's another son we're going to study. It's from a different wife, and this is David's um, firstborn son of all his sons. His name is Amnon. Amnon would have been a... Uh, a the, the next in the line to become king. Absol or Amnon would have been 
being raised to lead all of Israel. He would have been given everything he needed, everything he wanted. He was the crown prince. There is nothing he couldn't have in the entire kingdom. So those are our characters. We've got David, king of Israel, his children, Amnon, who is the crown prince, and then Tamar and her brother Absalom, okay? So that's the family dynamic that we've got here. Let's jump right into the story. Now David, son Absalom, had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately, that word is important, remember that, desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed, so desperate and obsessed, with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. The Bible uses the word love to describe the feelings that Amnon had towards Tamar, but it uses two other adjectives attached to the word love, in my opinion. Desperately and obsessed. I don't think the Bible very often uses the words desperately and obsessed to talk about healthy love, does it? We all know that love is patient, love is kind, love is obsessive, love is desperate, right? Or, no, that's not how it goes. Because that's not healthy love. There are many ways we use the word love. I love my wife. I love my children. I love tacos. Right? They don't, they don't have the same meanings. And desperate, obsessive love is not love the way we think of the word. It's actually something else. It's lust. It's lust. And lust is not love. It is not. It just isn't. Now, listen, a lot of people associate the term lust with sexual desire, and there's certain elements combined in them. But sexual desire can be a healthy thing. God has given us sexual desires, and they're important. It's, it's the reason I have three children, and they're amazing. And it's a healthy thing. However, lust is separate from love in a few key ways. You see, love is a choice. The Bible tells us to put on love, right? Because it's easy for us to forget to put on love. We have to remind ourselves, I want to be loving. We have to choose it day in and day out. For the people we want to love and the people we don't want to love, we have to put on love. You know what choice I don't often have to make? To put on lust. Lust puts itself on every time I go to the gym. I'm just being honest. Or every time I turn on the TV, or every time there's an ad, lust puts itself on. And you know what I have to do? I have to take it off. It's rare that I have to instruct myself not to love. That's natural. I'm like, oh, so mad. No, I, have, I love you. I have to put on love. I have to take off lust. You see, love is a choice. Lust is out of control. Love builds up, whereas lust tears down. Love is selfless, and lust is selfish. Love gives, lust takes. Love will wait, lust wants now. Love lasts, but lust leaves. Love never fades, but lust often fails, always fails, really. Love says we, and lust says me. Love says we can do this. Lust says I will take this. And when we fuel obsessive love, we fuel lust. When we go, 
I, I just, I, I gotta have it, I gotta have it, I gotta have it. We fuel it. And this is not specific to any single gender. Um, I, I notice there are hoots and hollers every time I watch a Marvel movie and one of those chiseled heroes takes off their shirt because they got grazed in a gunfight, ladies. I mean, Chris Hemsworth, come on. These thoughts are not unique to any gender. Lust forces itself on us. And if we don't control the godly desire that he gives us for sexual gratification, if we don't control that, we're left with only lust. You see, God gives us all kinds of desires. And if we meet those desires in godly manners, we are left with something beautiful. If God has given me a sexual desire and I, I find someone I love and choose to live my life with and I get married and then, then we have a, a healthy sexual life where we are only for each other and united, that is a godly desire met in a, in a godly way and I am left with a beautiful family. But when we decide we want to meet our godly desires in ungodly ways, we are left with destruction. You know, drug addictions are fueled because there are chemicals in our body that we want. And when we go to drugs to get them, we're, we're meeting a godly desire, you know, happiness, oxytocin, and we're meeting it in an unhealthy manner with oxycotton. Whenever we meet godly desires in an ungodly manner, we are left with something that has the potential to destroy us. Amnon had lust in his heart for his sister. And now Amnon could have had anything he wanted. He was the king's son, crown prince. You know what he probably had? A harem of women living in his home that he had complete access to at any time he wanted. It's almost like Adam and Eve who lived in a garden filled with trees of all kinds of fruit that they could eat anyone they wanted. But there was only one they could not have. And their desire focused and fantasized on the single thing that they couldn't have. And he dwelled and obsessed and lusted for it. And he fueled that lust with a conversation with a friend in verse 3. But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin, Jonadab. <laughs> That's for my teenagers in the room. I'm cool, right, guys? No? Okay. All right. Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother, Shema. One day, Jonadab said to Amnon, What is the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, I tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend or lie that you are ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it for you while you watch and feeds you from her own hands. Tamar is, is beautiful, and he wants to see her and just look at her and, and maybe have her feed him. And, and, and Joinadab, Jonadab, however you say that weird name, he's an evil individual. And if Amnon had gone to a good individual and been like, I have these feelings for my sister, man, and, and I just, I got to have her, they could have been like, that's not healthy. You know what, don't you have like wives that you can go to? And, and isn't there a right way to fulfill this? Why are you doing such a bad thing? But no, he goes 
to the wrong person to have the wrong conversation so that he'll feel right in his wrongness. And you know what love isn't? Love is not locker room talk. Love is not when you go to somebody else to talk about something else away from everyone and they can make you feel good about your bad thoughts. That is not love. Listen, I experienced locker room talk a little later than most because I went to Christian school up till eighth grade and we didn't have a locker room. We had a janitor's closet. I'm, I'm not kidding at all. It was literally mop, bucket, slop sink, get changed. And so we didn't have a locker room, so there wasn't much locker room talk. It was more like locker room rush away from the nasty smell. And then when I became a freshman, I joined the varsity wrestling team. So as a freshman, I was hanging out with seniors in the, in the locker room, and I quickly encountered that kind of discussion where individuals would talk about their girlfriends, their, their friends' sisters, their friends' moms in the most vile and disgusting manner, and everybody would do it, so it was okay. That is not love. Love doesn't say, well, if everyone's doing it, it's okay. Love says it's not okay. And you know what? It was made worse by the fact that my, my generation in high school was kind of one of the first generations to have uh, um, cell phones that would take pictures. Like, so everybody would have the pictures of their girlfriends to talk about, demean, demolish, destroy, discuss, to fuel their own desires with someone else's daughter. And it wasn't long before I allowed that kind of discussion to worm its way into my own life because I wouldn't put a stop to it and neither would Jonadab. He fueled it. He fueled the desire because, you know, and, and it's easy to say, oh, I don't have that kind of talk because, you know, we're not really in locker rooms anymore. We're not stupid high school teenage boys or maybe you were never a stupid high school teenage boy. But there is all kinds of that type of talk that tears down someone else to make you feel better about yourself often called gossip. You know, the other thing about Jonadab is he knew that Amnon was the next in line to be king. And maybe if I cozy up to Amnon and I tell him how to get his sister, yeah, that's the wrong thing to do, but it'll probably make me look a little better in his eyes. And when he becomes king, I'll get more powerful. So when my boss comes in and he talks about somebody, if I slam that person or destroy them, I might be a little better. We're all willing to have that kind of conversation, but that is not love. That's the kind of talk that destroys and tears down. And that kind of evil is what's wrong with our world and our society. Not being willing to speak up for the victim. Not willing to be able to speak up for those around us. This is tough, but we need to learn as believers to love even those who are unlovable to us. To speak well of even those who would speak negatively about us. To not tear down, but to build up. Because when we only tear down, we set a precedent in our lives that it is about me, not about we. And love says we, not me. Maybe it's not sexual lust, but it's certainly a lust for power, a lust for putting yourself first, a lust for your own growth, and that is not love, and we should not be a part of it. But after Jonadab comes up with this story, Amnon is again put to his own accord, and in verse six, we pick up our story. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked him, Please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. 
When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set everything, when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone, get out of here, Amnon told his servants. So they all left. Then Tamar, then he said to Tamar, Now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, Come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things are not done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it, and he will let you marry me. There are some cultural things we need to understand here that this kind of marriage would not have been outside of the cultural norm, and, and it was within David's power to make this allowance, but, but Amnon isn't making any kind of request. He is demanding his own way. Love requests, lust demands. You see, Tamar, she doesn't put a proposal of marriage outside of the realm of possibility here. Let's do this the right way if it has to be done. But Amnon demands his own way. And I mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians 13 a minute ago. You know that the passage that talks about love? Let's, let's throw it up there for a second. Love is patient and is kind. It is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. Amnon demanded his own way. It was what I want. It is what I need. I will get what I want. This is lust in every single way. This is fueled by sexual dysfunction. This is saying, I don't care about others. I care about me. I don't care if this hurts you. I care that this makes me feel better, so I'm going to do it. And this kind of thought process is not love and should not be allowed in a relationship, yet it worms its way in so simply and sneakily that it can fuel itself into a desire that can destroy. This kind of demanding should not be in our relationships. The, I've had so many discussions about when the Bible talks about how a man should be ahead of a household, and the Bible is right, it is true, 100% of the time, the husband is the head of the household, and if you come look at my household, you'll see that I'm the head, and I submit to my wife and everything. Yeah, I'm, I'm in charge, the buck stops here, right, hun? Whatever you say, because I love you so much, I would never demand something that would go against everything that you know and love and is true in your life, because I value her opinion. She is a prize. She is a beauty. She is intelligent. She is a mother of three who leads our, our kids' ministry in amazing ways, and I want to follow and submit to her. Why would I insist and demand my own way? Yeah, okay, I'm the head. All that means is I have the responsibility to make sure I am shepherding my family and following God because he is the ultimate head, and I submit to him the same way. I, actually, I submit to him far more than I would submit to my wife, but I submit to her. My wife sets my schedule. If she sees something on the calendar, she says, no, you haven't spent enough time with the kids. Guess what's getting canceled? 
No, hon, I haven't seen you enough. You can't do that. Okay. I submit to her. I do not demand my own way. And she does not demand her own way because that is not love. Love is what can we do? How do we decide this? Let's work together for the good of us, not me, I. It's all about me. You see, lust, it tears down, it separates because I need it. It demands, but love won't. Lust it causes sexual dysfunction, and those dysfunctions cause us to, to demand our own way. In the preparation of this message, I started to realize that, that this story is a cautionary tale of Amnon. He was supposed to be the crown prince, lead the, Israel peop the Israelites, God's people. He was supposed to lead them. But instead, he was looking at his own sister and then demanding his own way. He was going to the wrong people. What would cause this? And I found something called the, the cycle of addiction. Um, and, and then I, I found a, a cycle of sexual dysfunction. And then I, I adapted it a little bit to fit this message because I find there are four Ds of sexual dysfunction that I believe Amnon was struggling with that caused to his downfall. And I think if we can recognize these patterns in our own lives, we can identify before things go too far. And the first one is desire. Amnon looked at his sister and he said, I like her. And then he did not put or take that thought captive, and the desire fueled fantasy, and that fantasy led to the forming of a plan and a ritual in the step of devising. You see, if we have a desire, and it is not godly, and we continue to focus on it, we start to devise a scheme to get it. We start to, to twist and manipulate, to control and distort so that we can get what we want. And this kind of devising and scheming, it starts to fuel that desire more. And that desire is fueled by our, our devising and our planning. And then we've so devised the plan and put ourselves in a position that we end up doing the thing we never thought we would do. This is called, in a lot of the studies I read, the it just happened moment. So many individuals say, I will never do that, I will never do that, but they think and fantasize, they contemplate and consider, they twist their own mind so that they can celebrate their desires, and then when they're put in the moment, it just happened. I, it just happened, I, don't, I would never do that, but you did, because you put yourself in the position. This happened with me when, when I was young in high school. I allowed myself to be so deceived and tempted, so distorted by pornography and locker room discussions, so destroyed in my sexual thoughts that when I was put in the position, it just happened. I never thought I'd cross that line. And that led to the final step of the sexual dysfunction spiral, despair. Where after you've given in to temptation, you feel worse than ever. Because nothing was solved, it leads to self-loathing and hatred. The world tells us that the best way to get rid of temptation is to just give in to it. But the truth is, when we give in, we're left feeling worse than we ever started. So we have to go back to those initial desires to fuel ourselves, and then devising a way to plan it, and then doing it, and then feeling the despair again. So we go back to those desires, and we fuel ourselves, build ourselves up, and we're left in this cycle of dysfunction that distorts what God originally intended, a healthy sexual desire designed to exist inside a marital relationship. He created Adam and Eve and performed the first wedding in the garden. That is how we are to fuel that, that feeling. And when we come to that point of despair, we think we can get no lower. And we do it again. Pornography addiction is at 82% in church attendees. 
The cycle of despair destroys us, tearing down the image of God in individuals, putting ourselves in that position of power we were never intended to exist in. It destroys our culture. It destroys the image of God, and it fuels despair. It's the only place it can end. The story ends in despair, verse 14. But Amnon would not listen to her, and since he was stronger, he raped her. Then suddenly, Amnon's love turned to hate. His desire turned to despair, and he hated her more than he had ever, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to replace this word just for this message, lusted for her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. I remember in high school, in uh, sexual education, they talked about how pornography can be helpful for determining your own predilections and desires. Because we're animals, after all. Therefore, we should behave as animals seeking out multiple sexual partners. When we behave like animals, we become animals. Can you go back to verse 15? He snarled at her. When he gave in to his base urges, he became an animal. We are not like the animals. We were made in God's own image. We are capable of recognizing our urges and responding to them in a godly manner. And that is expected of us because we are higher. Because when presented with demanding, she said no. Consent was not up for debate in this discussion. And love listens, but lust looks away. Rather than, than looking at the humanity inside his sister, he looked away and he stole from her. He could have listened to her, heard what she was saying. He could have heard in her voice that he said, go to dad and he'll make it right. We can do this. Dave, the king will certainly allow you. He gives you everything you want. He sent me to you. Maybe this is something we could actually have. No, I want it now. Because love waits, but lust takes. And he stole, committed an evil act. In this world, those who have strength will often prey on the weak. They will take and distort and they will hurt others because they believe it will make them feel better, but they're left with despair. They exert their will on others, leaving them scared. Let's continue in the story to see what this act leaves. Verse 16. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servants and demanded, throw this woman out. He won't even call her by her name anymore. And lock the door behind her. You see, love will leave a lasting connection, but lust alone leads to destruction. He destroyed the image of God for her because love lasts, but lust leaves. Love lasts. Love endures all things. Lust destroys all things. It's a fire. Sexual desire can bring health to a relationship, but lust is a wildfire that will destroy. 
You have to take that off and put on love in your heart, in your mind, taking thoughts captive so you do not destroy. And now we begin to see that his unchecked lust leads to shame. We come back to the very issue of the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they had to make clothes to attempt to cover their own shame. Amnon was presented with the, uh, the side effects of his evil act, a woman left in shame. By giving into him to his temptation, he became horrified by what he had done. And rather dealing with the issue and making it right, he sent her away as an attempt to hide his own shame. He forced it on someone else. The world tells us that we should hide that what we have done, that we shouldn't talk about where we have been, that we shouldn't deal with the, the issues of our past, that if we just hide it, we'll feel okay. The number of stories that I have heard from individuals, not personally but anecdotally, where they have gone to someone in the church and they've said, I was, I was sexually assaulted. You know, this isn't really something we should talk about here. That's dirty or individuals who have, have had things happen to them and then feel like they aren't welcome, you know, wow, ugh. this is uncomfortable, and I wasn't planning on talking about it, but it, it popped up. There's a lot of debate right now and talk about pro-life and pro-choice down in, in, in Georgia and Florida where these new laws are passed, and I think we all know where I stand on this. But I've had teenagers get pregnant in our communities and not want to step foot into a church because of the feelings of judgment they will face. But they feel like they may be accepted if they step into a clinic. They'll be told, it's okay, we'll help you. The feelings of shame in a church do not belong because shame was left at the cross. If you have ever felt shamed by a believer, I am sorry. Because he does not look at you and see shame. He sees a son, he sees a daughter whom he loves. And he wants good for you. And he will help you heal. The minute the world gets credit for being accepting, when we get credit for being hate-filled, something is backwards. People come up to me, and they're not talking about these issues, but they're like, I know I shouldn't say this. No, you should say it. Let, let, get it out. Deal with it. Talk about your sin and your shame right here because there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is grace and forgiveness. There is new life. Leave it at his feet. You know the woman who poured her tears on Jesus' feet? You know what her job was? Do you know what her job was? She was a prostitute, and she sat at the feet of Jesus, weeping because he loved her and accepted her. That's what the church should be. And the minute someone feels they are not accepted here, we have failed. And Tamar is left in her shame by her brother who should have loved her because abuse leads to shame. Verse 18. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as, the, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But Tamar now tore her robe and put ashes on her head 
And then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. This is the first beautiful part in this story. It might not sound like it, but it is. Let me, let me help paint you a picture of a woman left in shame. She has two choices. She can go back to her father's house and pretend nothing happened. Or she can identify something was done to her and the world needs to know about it because I'm going to start healing right now. And she tears the cloak. She puts the ashes on her head and she begins to mourn. And the second she walked out of that house, everyone in that culture would have known what Amnon did to her. She's a hero who was brave enough when she shouldn't have had to. She came forward and she talked. She dealt with it. Her identity was in that robe, but it was stolen from her. So she moves into a new one of mourning, of weeping for what was stolen for her. Now let me make it very clear. God never saw her as anything different, but she knew that the culture would. She knew she could no longer be given away in a royal marriage, that she couldn't be seen as one of the king's virgin daughters anymore. So she mourns what is stolen from her, and she begins to deal with the shame of abuse because it will not go away on its own. It needs addressed. It needs dealt with. It needs brought into the light so that healing can begin, so that justice can take place. Because God sent his own son to this earth to heal the sin of shame. What is done to you does not matter in his eyes. What you can become is what he sees as valuable. Who you are to him is what matters. He sent his son. His son was in the middle of the temple and brought before him was a woman caught in adultery, accused of crimes. Yet the man was not dragged out and that injustice would not stand before Jesus. And he began to write in the sand, creating a moment where all could contemplate the issue and situation in front of them. And then as the, all the men leave, he looks at her and he says, who here condemns you? Now, this doesn't mean that, that we don't have to, to deal with our past and our issues, that, that there isn't consequences of our actions, but there is not condemnation found in Christ Jesus. There is forgiveness. Go and sin no more, he says to her. Lust leaves, but love lasts. And when we're confronted with the issue in front of us, we have two responses that we'll see in this story in verse 20. First, her brother Absalom saw her and asked, is it true that Amnon has been with you? Remember, by tearing the robes and putting the ashes on her face, they knew what had happened to her. And all he has to do is look at her. That is her con confession. What, look what has happened to me. That is her statement that I have been violated by my brother. She let the world know. Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now since he is your brother. Don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Now, you may hear those words and think that he was telling her to just shut up and ignore it. That is not the case. See, culturally, there were a lot of things that had to be done. There, he had to go to the right people. He had to seek out 
justice in the right way. But you know what he also did? He opened his home to her and brought her in. And he told her, you don't need to worry about this anymore. You don't have to think, what will happen to me? Where will I go? Who will help me? How will I provide? How will I survive? Because my very value in this culture was stolen from me. I won't be seen as pure in the church anymore. What am I ever going to do? Who will ever want me? He answered that question in a moment. I will want you. Come into my home. I will provide for you. I will protect for you. I will make sure that this is dealt with. You don't have to worry about it anymore. I got this. He wasn't saying, shut up. We shouldn't talk about this here. He was saying, I'll take care of you. Let's see the other response. When King David heard about this, when he heard about what had happened, he was very angry. That's all we ever read. He's the king. No one has more power than him in this society. What he says goes. He lays down the law. He decides the punishment. He can do anything to make this right. And you know what he did? He was angry. I think we all get angry when we hear about sexual abuse. But what do we do about it? What can be done? That's it. Absalom opened his home to his sister. David closed his heart to the issue. Love learns and lust lies. See, it was David's firstborn son, the next king of Israel, and he didn't want to drag his son's name through the mud. And you know what else? David had a little bit of sexual dysfunction. Maybe you know the story of Bathsheba, where he saw another man's wife and took her as his own. And then when that, that woman became pregnant, he wanted to hide his sin even further, and he ordered her husband to be killed. He was a murderer, an adulterer, a liar, who was led to all of that by his own lust. And I don't think he wanted to call out his son's sin because then he would have to deal with his own. One of the saddest parts in the preparation of this message is knowing that the church, not this church, the larger church has become a place for predators to hide in the past because no one will call them out because then they would have to address their own issues of lust. This should not be so. We are a hospital for sick people. And you know what? Nurses and doctors get sick too. That doesn't mean they stop taking care of the sick. Just because you have an issue that you're working on, just because you struggle and God is helping you, does not mean you can't call out the sin of others so that they can get healthy. It doesn't mean you don't look to those who are victimized and say, yeah, well, everybody's got problems. It means you say, let me help you find the God who can heal you. And you know what else? Absalom didn't just leave it at that. He waited two years for his father to deal with the issue. And when he did it, when he didn't, Absalom took the issue into his own hands. He brought his brother out into the wilderness with all his other brothers, and they killed him. And they brought the justice. Now, I want to make sure I'm not advocating mob uh, rule here. Like, I, I, don't bring anybody out back of the church and take care of them, please. But he did see that justice was done. He, he spoke to the man in power, and nothing happened. And then he continued and found justice for his sister. Church should be a place where we find justice for those who are hurting. 
There, there's, a, there's a movement going on in our culture. Thank God. Thank God. That those who are victimized feel empowered. And the church should be at the forefront. We should be at the forefront. One of the reasons this was a difficult message for me to prepare is because it's not an issue that has directly affected myself, but it has affected people I love and care about. And I, don't, I didn't know, what, what can I do? What can I do? What, what do we do? In the story of Judges, God tells Gideon, go with the strength you have and save Israel. Go with the strength you have. What strength do we have? What can we do? What can we offer? How can we fix this problem? Like all problems, it starts with us. We need to deal with the lust in our own lives. We need to let go of lust. Pornography has corrupted our culture, deeply distorted the image of God in our society. It's an $8 billion a year industry. The average age of introduction to pornography online is 11 years old, corrupting the way our mind works. There's a website. It's linked in the FB Church apps. If you're looking to find freedom, go to fightthenewdrug.org or com. Sorry, I can't remember. Fight the new drug. Just Google it. It'll work. And they talk about how this has so distorted the way our minds operate, it has changed the chemical makeup of our brain. Pornography has changed the society so greatly. And we don't talk about it in the church. You know why? 82% of church attendees struggle with a pornography addiction. This is not okay. We have to be willing to discuss this and find freedom from it. There are resources. There is Celebrate Recovery here in this church where you can find freedom from anything. If you struggle with, um, you know, you touch your nose sometimes, they'll help you find freedom from that addiction. It's not focused on drug and alcohol only. There's a stigma that that's what it's for, but it's for any addiction that you need to find freedom from. A food addiction, sexual addiction, sexual dysfunction, lust addiction, pornography addiction, gossip addiction, whatever you need, CCR. Go to fight the new drug. Let go of lust. That's step one. Two, we need to find freedom from shame. Some of us are ashamed of what we've done and what's been done to us. Now, shame starts in a good place. The Adam and Eve, they covered their shame because that's how they identified their sin. But we shouldn't stay there. We need to deal with it and move on from it. What's been done to you does not dictate who you are. Because love does not demand. You can be made new and whole. You are still loved by your creator. You are accepted by this body of believers. And if there is someone here who doesn't accept you, hopefully they're finding their way somewhere else because you are welcome here. You are welcome here. We need to find freedom from our own shame. Next, awareness. If you're letting go of lust, you need to talk to somebody about it. Make them aware of the issue so that they can confront it so that we don't need to feel the stigma about talking about it. We need to be aware of the fact that in our midst, individuals are still finding freedom 
from sexual addiction, still finding freedom from the shame of sexual assault. If someone came up to you in the lobby and said, you know that word that, that Jason just shared? It really hit me because I'm struggling with the fact of what was done to me. How will you respond? If you're thinking, I don't know, figure it out. This problem is too prevalent for us to turn a blind eye to it. You can learn, you can go online, you can find the resources. Go to survivors.com or again, maybe org. I don't remember, it's linked in the FB Church notes. They will have resources for you to learn what you can do about this problem. Take initiative, be aware, be ready to help. Third, you can mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. Be okay with the fact that this situation sucks. Because it does, we are between two gardens. And I never wanna to have to talk about this again, but I will, time and time again until all are free. Be okay with that and mourn the fact that we are in a fallen world. Pray that God would help heal those who are hurting. Because like I said, I don't have the power or ability. I could bring awareness and I can point you to the one who does. Because it is, his through, it is only through his grace that I am able to discuss this today. This is an issue I have struggled with. Lust and pornography have been a battleground throughout my life. But it is through his grace and forgiveness that I can stand here in freedom. And I can speak to you in love, saying our God wants something better for all of us. It is his amazing grace that brings us freedom. And we're going to end with the singing of that hymn because it was written by an individual who used to be a part of the slave trade in the Atlantic where people were taken from their home, carried on boats, thrown over the sides, left in the worst conditions imaginable so that they could be sold as cattle and others could profit. And when he was saved and transformed, he said, it is through God's grace I am saved because he was blind to the suffering that his actions caused. Pornography addiction affects our entire society. What you do in the privacy of your own home does destroy those around you. But through amazing grace, we can become aware and we can change. And that individual became a fighter for abolition in the UK, working with William Wilberforce to pass the laws that would set people free and it would outlaw slave trade forever in that nation. God can completely change and transform us from someone who identified as an aggressor or an abused person to someone who fights for freedom for those who feel victimized. We need to be willing to be used. This is a three-part series. Last week, Candace set up the problem. Today, we have become aware of the evil in our society and next week, we're going to talk about what we can do about it. Get ready. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.
celebrate the only thing that I know of with the power to deal with this issue, God's grace, his son who held on the cross all sin, all shame, all dysfunction, all disease, who brings victory to his people so that between two gardens, we can have heaven on earth. And I want to end with all people, whether you feel a victim, whether you're struggling with sexual addiction, whether you're just here, worshiping that God and declaring his grace over whatever situation you're in, crying out to him, the only one who can heal us. Let's sing.